Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nakubo In Brief. I'm Megan Strand, your host. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Peter Smith. For the last couple of years, Dr. Smith has held the posts as University of Maryland, University College, Orkind Endowed Chair and Professor of Innovative Practices in Higher Education. He has also served on the Provost Academic Innovation Advisory Council. Over the course of his career, Dr. Smith was the founding president of two institutions of higher education, and he has worked on education issues with the United Nations. He's even served in political offices in his home state of Vermont, including one term as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Most of his academic career focused on helping adult learners realize their potential, which is the fo- focus of his latest book, Free Range Learning in the Digital Age. Welcome, Peter. Well, it's good to be with you, Megan. In your latest book, you talk about how almost all of us underestimate our own personal talents. You also explain how the classroom isn't the only place where a person learns things, skills, and knowledge. So for our listeners today, could you start out by briefly talking about the coming revolution that you think will change academia as we know it today? I'd be happy to. And I think um, the, 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 the main point to make going in is that people have always learned uh, throughout their lives and 24-7. What's changed, what's bringing the revolution is the ability with enhanced technology and artificial intelligence to actually do something with it that is monumental in its impact, both human, academic, and professional. Um, but to, to start at the beginning, and I'll try to be brief, uh, Alan Toff, uh, a very well-regarded Canadian researcher, identified something he called the Adults Learning Projects. Um, almost uh, over 50 years ago, in the mid-60s. And what he identified, which was then confirmed again and again, is that people learn throughout their lives, but they spend, the average person spends between 750 and 800 hours a year in purposeful learning. Um, It could be a, a, a a course at work. It could be something they take themselves. It's non-collegiate. It could be simply experiential. Uh, but the fact is, if you just want to divide 800 by 50 weeks, give time off for Christmas and Thanksgiving, that's, that looks an awful lot like 14 or 15 or 16 hours a week. That's the average. Wow. The other thing he discovered, yeah, wow. The other thing he discovered was that people forget what they learned in the sense <laughs> that you say, what did you do uh, two years ago? Uh, and they'll say nothing. What did you learn? Nothing. But when they, because they've taken it in, they've assimilated it, the, the, it's become part of who they are. It has changed them, but, but they don't remember it as a concrete or discrete thing they did or learned in most cases. So 
in American American mythology uh, or Western mythology, you know, live and learn, school of hard knocks, Horatio Alger, uh, older but wiser. We have all these sayings that 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 pay homage, if you will, recognize that people learn all the time. Uh, but we in colleges and employment and for the individual have been woeful in our ability to actually catch that value, recognize it for the person and acknowledge it academically and acknowledge it in terms of the workplace. So part of what I've been doing for 50 years is working with a lot of really interesting, gifted people at how you help an adult who is coming back uh, think about what they already know so that when you put them in what I call an adult-friendly program in a college, you're building on what they already know. You're not asking them to relearn things. In the book, I call this the end of knowledge discrimination. What we have been doing in large part, except for relatively few institutions, what we've been doing is discriminating and valuing your knowledge based on where you learned it, not how well you know it and what you can do with it. So a returning vet can be penalized or a person coming out of corporate training could be penalized or a person doing their personal learning at home can be penalized uh, in terms of getting academic or employment recognition. That's what this book is about. The emerging revolution in college, career, and education is to that technological enhancements can take all this learning that Alan Tuff identified that has been now repeatedly acknowledged and really acknowledge its value to the person and to the institution that wants to educate them further and to the employer who wants to get the most and the best from them as a member of a working team. You talk about in the book the need to pair social and technical skills. So your your contention is that education needs something like a strong dose of liberal arts to provide a broader framework so that you understand how systems work, but also how to communicate and collaborate for the greater good. So how do you envision higher education become better suited to do more of this or to do this in new and different ways? Uh, it's a great it's a great question, Megan. And and I think there will be, there have been, I, I know Strata is working on a study that's really going to show that the the, the human skills that we think of that come or abilities with the liberal arts are, in fact, critically important for success in the workplace. Uh, you know, the, the science and technology and computer stuff may be necessary, but it's not in many, many cases sufficient for success over time in the workplace and satisfaction and happiness as a career rolls out. And it is those human skills, we've called them soft or essential employability skills, cross-cutting intellectual skills, problem-solving, analytics, working on a team, appreciating the diversity. Those kinds of things have to be called out in the way that we evaluate learning and validate what a person knows and is able to do. So part of what we need to do is understand that if we're asking a question, and, it, and I would argue this argues very strongly for project-based and problem-based learning, if you're in a college, uh, university setting or corporate setting, um, it also argues for internships and apprentices and 
activities, experientially based learning opportunities, which you then question and you, you, but you go beyond the first question, which we've always asked, say it's accounting. Um, how well do you know accounting at the 101 level? Boom, 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 boom. Okay. But then how, show me how you use that accounting to solve a problem. I want to see that you're adept not only at knowing it, but using it in an applied situation uh, to solve a problem. And then you can go from that to uh, the whole notion of you, you did a great job of analyzing that problem and thinking about it critically, uh, but you need to learn how to write a little bit better because you couldn't explain it. So what happens is there are multiple dimensions to assessment, and we've been really assessing along one dimension, which is how do you know something? All those other skills are in play. They're all in play and we're using them well or poorly. Did I work well on a team on a project? Did I do this? Did I do that? But we're not calling them out and evaluating them independently. As a result, the learner thinks in terms of, I know accounting. When in fact, there are two or three other dimensions that need to be called out so that he can say or she can say, I can be really, and an employer would know, this person's going to be good in a real applied accounting setting, working on a team to solve a problem. At the heart of it, when you're thinking about assessment of learning, I think of assessment of learning as a pedagogy. Assessment of what you know, the validation of what you learned becomes part of the learning experience, not a test. And I'm not saying there can't be a test, but not something where you're judged, but where you're engaged. And, and I think of it, the, the, the human skills, the soft skills are uh, when you learn how to reflect on what you've learned. So I think of reflection as the process by which you extract meaning from experience. So you did something, you did this project, you did this team thing, you solved this problem. Good for you. What did you learn? How did it change you? What were the problems you had? And when people learn how to reflect actively on what they've just done, one, they're much they're learning a heck of a lot more from that. They're extracting more, squeezing more out of that experience, but also they're becoming a lifelong learner. It's so interesting that you point that out. I think it's so relevant for CBOs. I have another podcast I, ho I host for Nakubo called CBO Speaks, in which I interview CBOs about their career. That is almost to the person, something they always bring up is just the fact that Yes, a CBO is a very technical position, but really to be a good CBO, you have to have those soft skills. You have to have the communication and the translation skills and the ability to work as a part of a team. So it's so interesting, and I think it's so relevant for our community. Amen. And one of the things that this emerging all around us revolution is doing, and I can say any success I have enjoyed as an educator, as a, as a CEO, a president, um, Critical to that is that I have had CBOs and other non-academic leaders who saw themselves as stewards of the of the institution as surely as any academic. They 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 saw themselves as being instrumentally important um, to understanding where we're coming from, where we're going, how to get there, uh, and not as simply 
in the case of a CBO, some green eye shades, making sure people don't waste money. They were part of the team, and I can I can track the successes that I've benefited from and that I get credit for back to, uh, yes, some academic people as well, of course, but uh, to the so-called non-academic, the planners, the CBOs, the board members, you know, the student services people uh, who understood that they were part of this, this drama and making it successful and more so going forward. Peter, you write about the need for thoughtfulness and civility and decency and real human connection versus the isolation and dislocation that is our uh, current social media landscape. So in our current economic and political climate with so many of our of our society have just lost trust in our institutions and government and our free press and with one another as Americans, how do we even begin to come back together from such polarizing differences? God, you take me back to my uh, political days. Um, I'm, a <laughs> reco- I'm a recovering politician and I'm, I'm really fairly well recovered. Uh, I'm going to put that in the educational context because otherwise we're just going to dive off a cliff. Please. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I don't have my paragliding equipment with me. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, th- what, what, What's possible today, whether you're on campus in a low residency program or off campus or in a non-campus, you know, non-higher ed program, is that we can personalize the learning that's going on. And this will give some people the highs, but in fact, um, even at our very best institutions, often what we've had up until the last 15 or 20 years out of necessity in most cases is something that is pretty mass produced and homogeneous. And what the individual got out of it was up to the individual and fate and luck and finding the right mentor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is, but what people are now seeing and the great potential for social media and technologically enhanced learning environments is two things. One, when adults return to school, they come with a purpose. And I think many young people of all, you know, all kinds and backgrounds are looking to find themselves because of their age. But adults come back with a purpose. Something's happened in their lives. They, they, they need to make a change and they, they want to make it. And so the, the great the great opportunity, I think what social media has been doing is helping people sort of understand that there is a chasm between themselves and their own lived life and how to get what they really need or want from the society around them in a way that is respectful and appropriate. Um, And so when I talk about personalization, I'm not talking about a, a DIY solution where everybody's off doing their own thing, because that simply isn't the way a lot of learning occurs. And purposeful learning, in most cases, involves groups, others, at least two or three, at least one other. So, but but personalization to me means is that, so we don't have a thousand solutions for a thousand learners, but for a thousand learners, every one of those people will know why they're doing what they're doing, why they're learning what they're learning. They've, they know they've been respected and appreciated for the knowledge they brought with them. There's been a gap analysis. They understand that where they're going to end up, what it will do for them 
personally, humanly, socially, civically, or economically. So the personalization is to the purpose they bring with them. And to me, that is the ultimately respectful and humanizing thing we can do with each other and with adult learners in this emerging world. And it's a possibility, a potential that we simply didn't have other than one-to-one before we got the technological enhancements and the artificial intelligence. Can it be used poorly? You bet. Anything can be done badly. And in often cases, has been. <laughs> but uh, or in some cases, not often. But but the potential here to personalize, to bring people together, starting with them understanding that their purpose is being honored and and that the the payoff, if you will, the consequence of what they're doing in a learning program, wherever it's happening, uh, the consequence is known to them. It's one they desire, and they're 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 fixed on that that track. That's to me the great opportunity we have uh, lying in front of us in all kinds of learning activities. Peter, I wonder if you could share some examples where you've seen pockets of innovation really working as it relates to this lifelong learning concept. Sure, and and there are, there are many, but I think that and the thing I want to say before I give a couple of examples is that they have been one-offs. There there has not been, uh, and there are dozens and dozens, and some would say hundreds of institutions doing things, but what has been absence is an overall collected economic sense, institutional sense. Why is this important? How does it relate to who we have been as an institution and where we're going, as opposed to being something like continuing education historically, stuck off in a separate building and used to serve the community, but also make money for the institution? What we're looking at, this disruptive emerging revolution, is very different from that because it's going to bring what have been, uh, I'm going to say, more fringe kinds of programs into the mainstream, recognized higher ed, workplace development, uh, workforce development uh, programs. Um, So that's, to me, the big difference. And you see lots of different examples. Uh, I think the the phrase I use in the book, and I have stories to go, I've talked to five or six innovative presidents who run what I call adult-friendly colleges. Um, And those are colleges like Charter Oak in uh, Connecticut or Rio Salado uh, in Arizona, University of Maryland, University College um, has been doing, you know, remote learning um, for 70 years, more than 70 years. And so these are colleges that have grown up around the notion of meeting the needs of the adult learner. And being adult friendly doesn't mean you have the same model. All these models are different, but it does mean that you have great connection to the workplace and getting better all the time. Great uh, counseling and academic support. Um, the assessment and appraisal of prior learning to give people full value for what they already know. There are what I found as I talked to these presidents is that they're as different as all the models were: Southern New Hampshire uh, University, etc. Running through what the presidents were saying were common characteristics of those colleges, even if they were doing them somewhat in different models. The characteristics were highly, highly 
uh, uh, similar. Uh, and so to me, as you think about the economics of being adult-friendly, it has to do with the characteristics of that program because the same old, same old won't work. And that's true for economics as well. Every college and university has a cost structure. Um, and there are lots of reasons for it, some good, some bad, and they're unique to each institution in some cases. But the thing about this technologically enhanced stuff, new ways of doing things, uh, is that you can do them in highly effective ways with high quality material at a fraction of the cost. And that's what some institutions are beginning to do. Georgia Tech is a great example where they have one of the five best master's in computer science programs on campus for fifty to 60000 a year with 150 of the best and the brightest. Very, you know, there you go. And they have something like 2,000 students in an online exact same master's of computer science program, but online people who are working with a 90% plus or minus a little uh, uh, per, you know, persistence rate uh, at about a third of the cost. And both programs are thriving. Uh, the fact of the matter is we have to figure out ways using technology on and off and in low residency programs are all online. We've got to figure out how to capture the value uh, of reduced cost and review, reduced expense for the learner against uh, equivalent or even better, in some cases, learning outcomes. Great challenge, but it's all part of being adult-friendly. If I'm working for a living and my wife's working for a living and I've got three kids and one's going to college and we have an annual income of 65000 combined, and I've got a college that's going to cost me twenty-five or $30,000 a year. That's not helpful if I'm trying, in addition to all those other things I have to do, I want to go back and further my own education. It's got to be, it's got to be something I can afford against a value that is tangible for me to get. And I think it's where CBOs come in, planners come in. These things can be done. Uh, and we're now developing the information and the examples um, that show uh, that while it might be different from the academic tradition you have practiced uh, over the years, it is absolutely just as good. It may look different. It may cost and expense different, but it, it is up to and it, it supports the historic mission and reputation of your institution. That's the challenge we face, among others. Well, and it might be stating the obvious, but I think that there's a huge economic opportunity there as well um, that again, talking to so many CBOs, just that financial innovation piece is so critical moving forward as um, traditional revenue streams get tighter and tighter. It just seems like something that they, they should have to consider. Imagine imagine having a set of fixed costs with 3,000 full-time equivalent students in an additional setting. <clears throat> and you're able to spin off a separate division with different rules that assesses prior learning. So in a four-year program, you're only actually delivering on on average two and a half years because the other year and a half has already been brought on board and counted towards the degree. And because it's a low residency or, or technologically enhanced or online or some combination of all three, um, your costs are uh, 20% of what they are for students who go the old-fashioned way. Um, the fact of the matter is, 
an argument has been made that you're losing money. Wait a minute, you're charging less. You're 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 costing us money. I would argue, I'll take two and a half years, uh, which is whatever it is for uh, one, two, three, four, five, five eighths. I'll take five eighths of two thousand new students paying me a reduced rate that I'm still making money on, and they're getting a good education over nothing. Right. I mean, or doing it with the old cost structure where, in fact, you you may get a fraction of those students because adults can't afford to pay those those kinds of rates. So there's there really it's a question of give me 65 percent of something as opposed to 100 percent of nothing. Now, that's an extreme, an extreme uh, sort of example to make a point that is, is subtler, obviously, and more complex. But they're right. There, there, uh, there are opportunities here to – so think of the institution doubling its FTE without adding any square feet. How do you do that? Technology is in there, but it's all these different models, and the economics can be different um, and should be probably, uh, because you're not getting the traditional wraparound campus experience. You're getting something much more targeted. The other thing I would say is to think about it from the learner's point of view. We have 90, there's an argument, but between 75 and 90 million people in this country with a high school diploma and some college or no college, but no degree. And we have 6 million jobs anyway going unfilled. Um, Now, uh, if you think about all this talent, going back to Alan Tuff, it's walking around, it's capacity to learn, it's talent that's already been been uh, realized, but can't get actualized because of the way we look at learning in colleges and and welcome people or not into the workforce. By bridging those gaps uh, and really st- in, in, in using the learning to satisfy both academic and employment outcomes, which can absolutely be done, we're creating the opportunity for people to upskill and go up the, the ladder in uh, the the companies or the professions or the uh, employment areas, occupational areas where they work. We're also creating room for other people to come in. And there is economic advantage to going upskilling or getting a better job or a job when you didn't have one before. So let's say that is $10,000 a year. I'm just using the number for, for comparison. Six million jobs times $10,000 is $60 billion of increased earning and spending and taxation. So it benefits the learner. It benefits the corner grocery store. It benefits the government through increased taxes. And when you think that this talent is, in my mind, already out there, and the capacity to learn is being demonstrated daily, it's up to educators and employers to figure out how to actualize that, how to make it real and valuable to the learner, but then to the college in question and to the employer. That's the opportunity we have in this new revolution. What other advice do you have for university business officers? I think the biggest mistake that gets made, and I mean no disrespect to the people who make it, but historically, Higher education institutions have used their core historic strength, their faculty, to think about how to do things differently. And 
my advice would be, as you start thinking about doing things differently, go get, whether it's consulting or people you pay to come in, the whole idea is to get people who can help you think about where you want to end up and then reverse engineer a program. And oftentimes, we ask people to crowdsource a problem in an environment which is political as well as academic, small p political, uh, to crowdsource a problem that they don't agree on, don't fully understand, and uh, may threaten them. The solution may threaten them. That doesn't make them bad people. That's what Clayton Christensen was writing about in, when he developed his theory of disruption. The college that exists is already serving people and serving them well, and it has alumni and it has traditions. Um, and those things are real, and they are great strengths going forward in the traditional way, but they are potentially huge negatives if you're trying to do business differently. And what Christensen does is describe how mainframe companies, every one of them but IBM, went out of business in a three- to a four-year period in the late 90s, not because they were stupid or they had bad products, but because these pesky little guys like Apple were coming along with these little games that seemed so silly that nobody wanted to pay attention. And these folks were making two, $3 million mainframes that were grinding stuff and they had customers and they were making money. What IBM did and why they survived, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, was that I think it was Lee Iacocca, took 100 or 200 of his best people, gave them something like $100 million or more dollars, sent them to another state and another place, and said, invent the future. Forget about us. Tell us what the IBM of the future ought to look like. And they came back out of that skunk works. They were protected from the status quo at IBM, the economics, the customer service. But IBM the traditional IBM was protected from them as well. So they came back with some solutions, which were then adopted. IBM survived barely, uh, but they survived. And that is the same kind of thing that colleges need to think about. Uh, I'm a big believer in a skunk works in reverse engineering, figuring out where you want to be and then reverse engineering to what it's going to take, economics, cost, everything else academic expertise, technological expertise to get there. Uh, and that often, uh, that's why Mitch Daniels bought Kaplan uh, and turned it into Purdue Global, as opposed to spending a whole bunch of his own money to try to develop something. It is why we've seen failed projects in many, University of California, frankly, California State University, which I love and where I worked, uh, and several states have had debacles because what they tried to do is build new off the old as opposed to understanding the essence of disruption and respecting it and then creating a skunk works or a different way of doing it. There's a new project at the California Community College System Office, which is creating a statewide college out of the system office for exactly this reason. It needs to be protected, but also the 132 or whatever it is, California community colleges, they need to be protected too. That So there's a new model for how we make change and it has economic as well as academic implications. 
Thank you so much, Peter, for joining me today to talk about your fascinating book. It was really terrific chatting with you. Where can people find your book if they'd like? <laughs> oh, I thought you'd never ask. Um, <laughs> uh, clearly, obviously, Amazon. Uh, and if you're a persistent uh, 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 local buyer, obviously, you can go and order it at a local bookstore. Some have it, some don't, uh, uh, although it's gotten a couple of great reviews. I will say that there's a wonderful human component to this uh, book, which I'm really proud of. One of my endorsers, uh, Don Graham, uh, recent, formerly of the Washington Post, said to me, you know, Peter, this is part Suds Turkle and part Gail Sheehy, which blew me away. And I was thrilled. I don't confuse myself with either of those icons of writing and social commentary. Uh, but to even have somebody think there was a, a minor, a minor connection was thrilling. Uh, so there's a wonderful, there are stories throughout the book and that's what really changed me as a, as the writer and as a person, even after almost 50 years in the business. So, uh, Amazon, for sure. I know it's there. Um, and local bookstore, if you're so inclined. Those are my two advices. And uh, uh, I'd love to, people who buy it and read it and have something to say, I'd love them to review it on Amazon. That really helps. You can find out more about Dr. Peter Smith, as well as a link to his book and today's episode by visiting the conferences and e-learning section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you also subscribe to Nakubo in Brief and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Peter and myself, I'd like to thank you for joining us for th this episode of Nakubo in Brief. Mm -hmm.